Today on the Matt Wall Show, is it even possible to be a police officer in America today when even shooting a knife-wielding suspected rapist and serial abuser causes protests and riots? Also, five headlines, including the apparent execution murder of a Trump supporter in Portland and Joe Biden's incredible moral cowardice in the face of this escalating violence. And in our daily cancellation, we will cancel the latest celebrity to come out as non-binary, whatever that's supposed to mean exactly. That and much more to discuss today. A lot coming up. But first, let's talk about Legacy Box. Cue the background music. Very relaxing. Now, um, listen, I don't know about you, but I have uh, I, I have some of my favorite old family memories trapped in old camcorder tapes and videos and other decaying forms of old media. In fact, just a few days ago, my mom gave me a box of my old stuff, some old pictures and videos and stuff, uh, memories. And I kind of wondered why she didn't want to keep them for herself. I guess I'm being disowned. I don't know. Um, But anyway, that's all the more reason to use Legacy Box. Legacy Box is a super simple mail-in service to have all of your videotapes, camcorder tapes, film reels, pictures, um, digitally preserved on a thumb drive, DVD, or the cloud, with summertime officially coming to an end. We've got fall on the brain. Uh, what were your favorite fall childhood memories? Maybe apple picking, carving pumpkins, football games, watching the leaves change, whatever it is. Did your parents capture these memories on camera? Um, are these recorded moments still you know, trapped on outdated videotapes, film reels, slides? Uh, being able to preserve those memories is exactly what Leg- Legacy Box was created to do. Let them digitally preserve your past and bring new life to those trapped family memories um, I can tell you, you know, I got my first Legacy Box back a couple months ago. It was a big treat, a lot of fun, very simple and easy to do on my end anyway. You know, I don't know what magic they pull over there, but for me, it was very easy. And now um, I'm thinking I'll probably do it again. Uh, and I think you should too. Get started preserving your past today with our Labor Day sale. Go to LegacyBox.com Walsh to get 50% off your first order. Order today. Send in when you're ready. Um, this exclusive offer won't last long. So go to LegacyBox.com Walsh and save 50% off while supplies last. Okay, Um, here's the scenario. You are a police officer, a seven-year veteran of the force. One day, call comes in, domestic disturbance. A woman has contacted 911 because her ex-boyfriend is at her house, is not supposed to be there. She's scared. He's stolen her keys, wants to take her vehicle. Uh, He's wanted for sexual assault and domestic abuse. There's a warrant for his arrest. When you pull up in your police cruiser, you quickly notice the knife in his hand. You try to de-escalate the situation with words, reasoning with him. He's in no mood to be reasoned with. Then you try to take control of the situation physically, but he fights back, puts you in a headlock. You deploy your taser. It has no effect. Another taser. Again, no effect. Then he starts moving towards the vehicle. Is he going to grab a gun? Is he going to steal the car and drive away? Is he going to take it and run you or the woman over? There are kids inside. Will they become hostages? Will they get injured in a car chase? Will he kill them? These possibilities all race through your head in the span of five seconds, maybe less. You don't have time to deliberate. The man has made his choice, and all you can do is respond to it. So you yell for him to stop. He doesn't listen. You yell again. Your gun is pointed right at him. He doesn't care. He opens the door. You grab him. He makes a move to climb inside or reach for something. You're out of time. You shoot. Let's try another scenario. You're not a police officer. In fact, you don't have any job at all. Nor do you have a car. Sometimes you take your ex-girlfriends without permission. One morning, you're angry at her, so you break into her house while she's sleeping. You go into her room, and you sexually assault her just to make a point. 
She's scared. She's crying. You've seen her like this before, all the other times that you've abused and beaten her through the years, usually when you're drinking. You leave her like that. You exit the room. You steal her keys and her debit card. You drive away in her vehicle. You stop at the ATM and take out some money on her card. She calls the cops. Eventually, a warrant is issued for your arrest. Fast forward a month or two. You go to her house again. She tells you to leave. You refuse. You take her keys from her. At some point, you draw a knife. The cops show up. You assault them too. Uh, you refuse to go with them, even after two zaps from the taser. You escape their grasp. You start moving towards the car. They draw their guns, point them at you, screaming. You keep moving. You open the door. One officer is pulling at your shirt. You keep moving. You wake up in a hospital bed. You cannot feel your legs. Now, those are the two scenarios. Two people, same situation. Which of these people did you find most relatable? Whose actions can you more readily understand? Who made choices that you could see yourself possibly making in a similar situation? If you had to launch a moral or logical defense of either person, which would you choose? Now, far be it for me to make assumptions about you, but I would certainly hope and guess that you can relate to, defend, and understand the first man, the police officer. The second man has his reasons, I guess, for the way he acts, but they cannot possibly be good reasons, and his behavior is not defensible or, for decent people, understandable on any level at all. And yet, in this upside-down world in which we live, it is the second man who gains all of the sympathy. It is his name that's cried out in grief and mourning. It is for him that every professional sports league in the country speaks out in solidarity. It is his name that ends up on the murals and the poster boards and the t-shirts. The other man's name, the police officer who made choices and behaved in a way that every decent and rational human on earth, if they were to stop to think about it for two seconds, would at least find comprehensible, perhaps even admirable, is anathema. He is cast in the role of villain the um, dastardly foil to our hero, who also happens to be a serial abuser and rapist, at least if the allegations are true. Now, granted, some of this scenario, as I have described it here, is technically speculative, but it's a scenario that emerges very clearly from a combination of the video, the police scanner audio, the criminal complaint complaint filed against Jacob Blake, stemming from his alleged uh, sexual assault of his ex-girlfriend in May of this year, and the testimony of the Kenosha Police Union. The other scenario, the first one we were given, and the one that the media would still like for us to believe, that Blake is a family man and a good Samaritan randomly gunned down by a racist cop for the crime of breaking up a fight uh, between two women, has absolutely no credible evidence of any kind to support it. All of the evidence points to what I have just described. And the allegation of the sexual assault is just that, an allegation, but it was made by a woman who called 911 on the day of the alleged crime and trembled with fear as she recounted what had happened to her. There is just no good reason to doubt her. Um, The point is that from everything we know, and in light of all of the credible evidence, and I am counting, by the way, I'm counting as decidedly not credible, the supposed eyewitnesses who initially claimed that Blake wasn't behaving aggressively at all, even though he had a knife and he had a cop at a headlock, and only took his girlfriend's keys and went to her car with guns trained on him so that he could check on his kids. That's what one of the, one of the eyewitnesses said. So I'm, I am counting that as not credible. But in light of all the credible, credible evidence, um, the police officers were responding to a situation entirely of Jacob Blake's own making. And doing what they could to protect all of the innocent lives involved, including their own. 
there is at this juncture no reasonably plausible version of the story that vindicates Jacob Blake. And yet again, he is lionized and canonized and mourned over while the officers are castigated as attempted murderers and racists. And those accusations rain down from some of the most visible and powerful perches in society. In other words, it's the same old story playing out again and again and again and again. How is it even possible to be a police officer in this environment? Because the moment a suspect, a non-white suspect, resists arrest or goes for a gun or tries to kill you or someone else, you lose, no matter what. You go to work every day to serve communities that despise you. You risk your life for people who wouldn't dump a bucket of water on you to put out the flames if you were on fire. In fact, they probably set the fire. In the most intense and life-threatening situations, you are left with no room for error. Even if you don't make an error, the video that somebody captures and cuts and clips and posts online may make it seem like you did. If you end up in a fight for your life against a violent sociopath, you may, you may go to prison for winning it. The people gathered around to watch and film the incident will almost certainly lie about what happened. They will inexplicably defend the sociopath and call for your head on a platter. They will say that they live in fear for their life every day because of you. But it's the sociopath and people like him who are responsible for almost all of the killing and violence in their community. And yet its members will choose him over you, like the crowds shouting for Pilate to release Barabbas. And if he dies, they will mourn the loss of a man whose absence makes them all safer. This attitude is not confined to any town or city. It's fostered at the highest levels of society. Powerful politicians and athletes and celebrities are all dedicated to a narrative that is completely dis disconnected from reality. And if you're a police officer, they tell lies about you and your line of work constantly, and they don't care if those lies get you killed. And while your worst and most difficult moments are broadcast to the entire world and dissected by idiots and charlatans who've never in their lives faced a situation as volatile as the kind you encounter every day, your triumphs are ignored. For example, law enforcement, law enforcement officers in Georgia just completed a two-week operation that successfully recovered 39 missing children, 15 of whom were being sex trafficked. This news was you know, covered in a perfunctory way because it had to be, but it was not plastered all over the headlines or shouted from the rooftops. Only your mistakes, or things that can be made to look like mistakes, get that kind of treatment. It seems impossible to deal with this, and yet thousands of police officers do deal with it every day by choice. This doesn't mean that police officers are always right, or that injustice at the hands of law enforcement never happens, or that we should adopt an uncritical attitude towards agents of the state, far from it. But they are doing a job that society needs done and one that is only made more difficult by the day. So I figure I owe them the respect of at least listening to their side of the story and trying to see it from their perspective and considering all of the factors in the entire context before labeling them bullies or murderers for the choices they make in situations I have never encountered while doing a job I rely on but would never want to do myself, especially these days. Let's go to five headlines. Well, we begin, of course, with the Trump supporter in Portland, apparently executed in cold blood on Sunday, um, Saturday, that is. A caravan of Trump supporters and Blue Lives Matter supporters went into Portland to counter-demonstrate. Much has been made of the fact that they were uh, uh, shooting paintballs at the BLM and Antifa people, using pepper spray in some cases, and that's true. But every video I've seen 
of the paintball and pepper spray being deployed uh, begins with someone in the Antifa slash BLM crowd throwing something at them or using some other weapon against them. So in any case, it was a volatile environment. And then the shooting. Uh, the victim's name is Aaron Danielson. The man police are investigating for the killing is Michael Forrest Reinel. Um, a few pieces of footage have emerged uh, from this. None of them very clear. Uh, the first shows, you know, in the distance, in the dark, one man walk up to another, and then you see the gun go off, and the guy who pulled the trigger runs in the other direction. It does not appear at all to be self-defense in that video. It appears to be execution, plain and simple. But the most revealing video is actually one that doesn't, doesn't show the shooting at all. Um, instead, it's what you hear that matters. So I'm going to play that for you now. And uh, again, you're not going to be able to really see anything. It doesn't matter what you see. Just just listen. Listen for the words that you hear. Yeah, that is one of the most chilling videos I've ever seen, and it doesn't even show uh, the shooting itself. You can clearly hear someone say, hey, we've got another one here. We've got another one. We, we, we've got another one here. We've got someone right here. And then, and then someone else says, right here. And then bang, bang, you hear the guns. Um, by all indications, they targeted this man and executed him in cold blood. First degree murder and political terrorism. Um, and you know, the guy who did it should be, should be, this should be federal charges, ship him off to Guantanamo Bay. As far as I'm concerned, uh, he is a, not only a murderer, but a terrorist. This is an act of terrorism. Now, needless to say, the, the leftists who are apoplectic about Kyle Rittenhouse, in spite of the fact that it appeared in his case to actually be self-defense, they couldn't find it in themselves to condemn this, this political execution with nearly the same fervor or, or really condemn it at all in a lot of cases. Um, this includes, of course, the rotting cucumber of a mayor, Ted Wheeler, who spent more time in his press conference yesterday condemning Donald Trump than the actual guy who pulled the trigger. And also Joe Biden, who issued a statement that really flies in the face of all the stuff we hear about him being a decent guy and just a wonderful guy. The, the, the Democrat convention, it was just four days of what a wonderful, great guy he is. What Here are his, his, his favorite ice cream toppings. What a great guy he is. Um, well, you see, not just in this, but you see uh, illustrated in this statement, which I'll read to you in a second, the fact that Joe Biden is, among other things, an incredible moral coward. So let me play this for you, or not play it, uh, let me read it for you, in fact. Here's the statement from Joe Biden. Uh, and this statement, by the way, of course, is being praised by the media as being a, just a wonderful, wonderful statement, very calming and, and, and all of that. Gr great leadership here. Well, you tell me what you think. The deadly violence we saw overnight in Portland is unacceptable. Shooting in the streets of a great American city is unacceptable. Oh, he called it, un well, it's unacceptable. Great. Okay. Well, that's a strong condemnation, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, walking up to a guy and executing him on the street is unacceptable. I condemn this violence unequivocally. I condemn violence of every kind by anyone, whether on the left or right. And I challenge Donald Trump to do the same. It does not matter if you find the political views of your opponents abhorrent. Any loss of life is a tragedy. Today, there is another family grieving in America, and Jill and I offer our deepest condolences. We must not become a country at war with ourselves, a country that accepts the killing of fellow Americans who do not agree with you, a country that vows vengeance towards one another. But this is the America that President Trump wants us to be, the America he believes we are. As a country, we must condemn the incitement of hate and resentment that led to this deadly clash. Listen to that part. Let me read it again. 
As a country, we must condemn the incitement of hate and resentment that led to this deadly clash. It is not a peaceful protest when you go out spoiling for a fight. Who does President Trump, what does President Trump think will happen when he continues to insist on fanning the flames of hate and division in our society and using the politics of fear to whip up his supporters? He is recklessly encouraging the violence. Uh, and then he goes on a little bit more. Uh, just the rest of it is just attacking President Trump. Okay, so he spends most of this um, condemning President Trump. There, there is, I, I, don't, I don't think there is, even in this statement, really, a clear and very specific and harsh condemnation of the killing itself. He calls it unacceptable, but he does it in the, he, he's using a passive voice, which is a common trick that leftists are pulling now, and we'll get, we'll get to another example of that in just a second. But he's using a passive voice, and he's kind of speaking in general terms, oh, deadly violence, a clash, a deadly clash. This wasn't a clash. It wasn't a dead... The deadly moment was not a clash. This was just a guy walking down the street and he was shot in the head. Uh, it's not a clash. That's that's murder. And uh, and but he's condemning the incitement and hate and resentment that led to this. Now, yeah, I agree that there's a lot of incitement and hate and resentment leading to this, but that's happening from BLM and Antifa and and Democrats. And I know that you know uh, I basically just said the same thing three times. Sorry for the redundancy. That's happening from them. But that's not what he means. He's saying the people that were there were inciting the hatred and and uh, and, and resentment. So this is this is victim blaming on top of it. Um, at a minimum, this is moral cowardice from Joe Biden, who just I'm sorry is not the great decent guy uh, that they make him out to be. I wish he was. I really wish he was. But he's not. Um, Number two, since we're on the subject of the impossibility of policing these days, here are a few exhibits to present for your consideration. Uh, not that you need any more. We've seen a lot, but just some, some of the latest, okay, on that topic. First, this is a BLM leader in D.C. openly calling for police and other public officials to be murdered. And this is being said into a megaphone in the middle of the city. Um, and uh, anyway, take a listen. I'm at the point where I'm ready to put these police in the fucking grave. I'm at the point where I want to burn the fucking White House down. I want to take it to the senators. I want to take it to the Congress. I want to take the fight to them. And at the end of the day, if they ain't going to hear us, we burn them the fuck down. I'm one that talk real shit. I talk it in New York. And I talk it in D.C. The same way I police up in New York, I cops up here in D.C. The same way I bust police in the head in New York, I bust police in the head in D.C. Now, it's a lot of people, and I'm going to be honest, it's a lot of people that's on this front line. And one of the things that I always say, don't get on this front line if you ain't going to fight. Don't get on this front line if you ain't gonna take no hit. Don't get on this front line when the police can push up, you push back. If you gonna be on this front line and them racist, nasty, punk, police is pushing up, you push the up. What you just heard there, um, none of that is free speech. That is terrorism, incitement. You wanna talk about incitement, that, that's what incitement sounds like. And if we didn't have such a feckless and useless government, that person would have been arrested on the spot. 
and would be headed to federal prison right now. Again, that is terrorism. And then, and then there's this from CNN. Uh, we talked about the passive voice. Well, here you go. Here's their headline and caption on Twitter. It says, two Chicago police officers pulled over a person suspected of having a gun, and all three ended up hospitalized with gunshot wounds, officials say. So all three ended up hospitalized. How did that happen? Did bullets fall out of the sky randomly? How did they all end up with gunshot wounds? What do you mean they ended up? Well, it turns out, and you would have to read like five or six paragraphs into this article to see it. turns out the officers tried to pull the guy over because he's committing a crime, allegedly, and he shot them both. The suspect did. Then a third police officer rushed into the scene to save those officers and shot uh, the suspect. That's what happened. But even in the reporting of a violent criminal shooting police, CNN has to find a way to make it seem like police at least share part of the blame. Or maybe that no one is to blame. So enemy of the people. Yes, these are, the CNN is, these are enemies of the people. Uh, it's perhaps one of the, tr- maybe the truest thing that Trump has ever said in his life, um, describing the American media as an enemy of the people. I mean, they are. They're trying to get the American people, many American people, killed. I mean, they're, they're, they want a race war. They want violence and chaos and, and murder in the street. It's what they want. I cannot think of any other way to explain this. I mean, when you can't even bring yourself to just just straight up report violent criminal shoots police officers, you can't even do that. Number three, big shock over the weekend. Uh, another big shock. It was, a, it was a weekend of a lot of shocking events. None of them good, unfortunately. Um, so another one, it was announced that Chadwick Boseman, who starred in Black Panther, also played Jackie Robinson, James Brown, played a, he had a, uh, quite, a, quite a filmography in a relatively short career. Uh, he has died of cancer, colon cancer. Apparently, he was diagnosed back in, um, I think it was 2018. And he never, I believe he never told anyone publicly about his diagnosis. And he went on making movies and and, uh, and doing press, visiting sick children in a hospital, uh, you know, carrying on being a public figure, a celebrity, without ever letting on that he was dying of cancer, which is a really remarkable thing. I think it's a great example of um, of courage and, and dignity. Um and it reminds me of a story. When I, when I read about this, I, I immediately thought of a story that I think I've mentioned before in the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn's book about the uh, Soviet um, labor camp system. And w- one story he tells, he tells a lot of stories that really uh, stick out, but, but one in particular about um, a guy who's, who's uh, in one of these prison camps, scheduled to be executed, uh, but he convinces the guards to let his wife visit. So he can see his wife one last time before he's killed. But the deal is that he's not allowed to tell his wife that he's going to be executed. So he, he can spend a couple days with her, but he can't tell her anything. And probably telling her would, would put her own life in jeopardy. So he spends a weekend with her, you know, and uh, he never lets on and she never suspects anything. And then as soon as she leaves, they take him before the firing squad. So this is, you know, a similar kind of thing. A man facing down his own mortality, experiencing presumably an incredible amount of inner anguish and grief and fear and panic and everything, yet carrying on with dignity and, and, uh, and quiet resolve. So heartbreaking, but a great example um, for us all. Let's go number four. I regret to inform you, my friends, that Michelle Obama, uh, former first lady, wealthy, powerful, admired, loved, famous, is nonetheless oppressed. And she's oppressed by you, it turns out. 
So, uh, you know, shame on you for oppressing someone who's 100 times richer and more powerful than you. How dare you? In a recent podcast, the former first lady, according to the New York Post, this is what she said, telling her tale of oppression. She says, when I've been completely incognito during the eight years in the White House, walking the dogs on the canal, people will come up and pet my dogs, but will not look me in the eye. They don't know it's me. What white folks don't understand is like that it's, it's like that is so telling of how white America views people who are not like them. You know, we don't exist. And when we do exist, we exist as a threat. And that's exhausting. What the white community doesn't understand about being a person of color in this nation is that there are daily slights in our workplaces where people talk over you or people don't even see you. Uh, and then later on, she says, we were stopping to get ice cream and I had told the Secret Service to stand back because we were trying to be normal, trying to go in. When I'm just a black woman, I notice that white people don't even see me. I'm standing there with two black, little black girls, another black female adult. They're in soccer uniforms. And a white woman cuts right in front of us like she didn't even see us. The girl behind the counter almost took the order. And I had to stand up and was like, well, I'm not going to cause a scene with Michelle Obama. Um, she continues. So I stepped up and said, I don't know what that means. Anyway, she said, I stepped up and said, excuse me. Uh, you don't see us four people standing right here. You just jumped in line. Obama said the woman didn't apologize. She never looked me in the eye. She didn't know it was me. Uh, all she saw was a black person or a group of black people, or maybe she didn't even see that because we were that invisible. Okay. You know, perhaps it never has occurred to Michelle that um, actually she's in no position uh, to tell other groups of people what they do and don't understand. She says this about three times in this one, you know, in, in two minutes of talking, she's about three times. She's like, what white people don't understand, what you white people don't realize. It's pretty disturbing that this woman and her husband were in charge of the country and had this attitude about, you know, about a, a, a vast majority of the American population. Based on this, she has a very low opinion of white people. And, a, a, you know, a white person cuts in front of her, immediately assumes it's racist. So how the hell do you know what other people are thinking or feeling, Michelle? How do you know? Who are you to go around saying this? You have no freaking idea what other people are doing or what their motivations are or what's going on in their head. Who are you to assume that? She just prattles off, you know, a dozen things that white people think and don't think and do and don't do. She is doing exactly what she accuses white people of doing to her by not letting them exist and be real and be their own people and speak for themselves. No, she's going to speak for them. Um, the arrogance of that is just, I mean, it's off the Richter scale. It's one of the most arrogant people in the country is, is Michelle Obama. And I'm not just saying that based on, on only this. This is, a, this is part of a pattern with her. Meanwhile, the traumatic experiences that she recounts, getting cut, you know, cut in front of in line, people not being overly friendly, uh, getting talked over, that happens to everyone, Michelle. That's a normal thing for people. It happens to me. It happens to every person on earth. That is an utterly normal part of life for everyone, okay? We all deal with that, all of us. I could tell you stories of having people cut in front of me in line. It's happened to me. I guarantee you that. You know what I didn't do, though? I didn't assume that the person doing it was, it was a bigot. Or I, I didn't make these, these damning assumptions about their entire life and existence and everything based on that. I assume that they either just didn't see me because they weren't paying attention. They're up in their own head. Uh, and it's nothing racial or bigoted at all. 
Or worst case scenario, I assume that, you know, in this moment, this person's acting like kind of a jerk. Doesn't mean that they're a horrible person elsewhere. I've done it myself. I bet you have too, Michelle. I bet there have been times when you've cut in front of people, knowingly or unknowingly. So we all deal with that. Okay, all of us, all of that stuff. Oh, I got talked over. That happens to everyone. It is so normal. I, I, it's not, we don't like it. It's not fun. It's annoying. It is so normal, though. I, 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 can't, I can't stress this enough. It just happens to everyone all the time. It really does. I promise you that. And, and, and rather than making assumptions about entire races of people and telling white people what they do and don't experience, why don't you ask them? You know, why, don't you, why don't you let them speak for themselves and tell you what they experience? So you, you have something that happens to you every once in a while. You get cut in front of in line. Someone talks over you. Rather than assuming, oh, this never happens to any, anyone of that race, maybe ask them, oh, does this happen to you guys? And if they tell you yes, then just take them at their word. Um, but here, here's the deal. Michelle Obama, you know, she said she's pretending she wants to be treated just like everybody else. No, she wants the opposite. She doesn't want she's offended that she was treated like everybody else. She doesn't want that. She's offended not to be treated differently. Under the guise of being of being offended that she was treated differently. That's what this is really about. That's what this is always about. I mean, with this with this kind of thing. Um Okay, so especially when it's a privileged, rich, powerful, wealthy person claiming that they're being oppressed, uh, in 99 times out of 100, what they're really going to be offended about when you get down into it is just that they, you know, God forbid, got treated like a normal person once. Okay, number five, the VMAs were last night. I somehow completely missed that uh, they were on. I usually watch all the VMAs. I'm a big fan. I, you know, I host a watch party uh, usually uh, when the VMAs are on. We all wear our pajamas and dance to the to the songs. Um, it's a fun time. In any case, the Hollywood Reporter has the recap. Uh, first of all, there's a picture of Lady Gaga accepting her award for her performance in the latest uh, Power Rangers film. It looks like she does. Look, she looks like a villain from Power Rangers, doesn't she? A little bit, or maybe Mortal Kombat. Um, anyway, the, the Hollywood Reporter says Kiki Palmer hosted the show, which aired Sunday night. The weekend won Video of the Year for Blinding Lights at Sundays. Actually, it's spelled, I think it's misspelled because it's missing an E for the weekend. It's really spelled weakened. The weakened uh, one video of the year. Other winners Sunday night included Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande, uh, BTS, Taylor Swift, H-E-R, Maluma, Machine Gun Kelly, and Megan Thee Stallion. I don't know who any of these people are. I know Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga. Those, those two I know. Uh, Grande, she's the one who licked the donut. She's the donut lickers. I know her. H-E-R and Maluma? What? Um, these, these, they sound like uh, skin conditions a little bit. Gaga's other wins included Artists of the Year and Song of the Year for Rain On Me, her collaboration with Ariana Grande. Uh, the Weeknd also won Best R&B. Um, Kiki Palmer hosted the show, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm trying to see if there's any big... Okay, here we go. Later on in the show, Palmer showed off her comedic chops by portraying her alter egos, including one she's featured on her TikTok. While visiting different spots in New York, such as the Bronx Zoo, where she uh, could see the, quote, the cats from the WAP video. I guess that's supposed to be a joke. That's her showing off her comedic chops. Uh, Palmer encounters her Southern Belle alter ego, Lady Miss. At one point, she jokes, you're cattier than Carol Baskin. 
Oh, man. This is bad. You're cattier than Carol Baskin. That was actually a joke that made it into this professional production. Oh, man. I, I, I you know, I, I went, when I was in seventh grade, my school had a talent show. And there was like an 11-year-old who got up and did a stand-up performance. And all of his material was way better than your caddier than Carol Baskin. So unfortunately, I, I, I'm, I'm sad I missed that show. We all, we all missed it. Um, you might say there are more important things going on in the world. I don't know. Like, for example, our daily cancellation, which we will get to now. Sadly, this afternoon, I must cancel Sarah Ramirez. She is evidently an actress uh, best known for her role on Grey's Anatomy. The reason I have to cancel Sarah today is because of a recent post on Instagram where she uh, came out as non-binary. Now, you might ask, what does coming out as non-binary mean? The answer is that it doesn't mean anything because non-binary is not a thing, unfortunately. Um, There is a binary, and it's not possible to not be a part of it. The binary, broadly speaking, breaks down like this, okay? Um, In one camp, you have people who can get pregnant. In the other camp, you have people who can get the people in the first camp pregnant. Pregnant and pregnator, you might say. Not the most eloquent way of putting it, but that's what it is. And there's your binary, okay? You can call people in these camps whatever you want. Call them Team A and Team B. You can make up some names like, I don't know, Snagglespiffs and Gallywags. Sounds a little bit like Harry Potter characters, but whatever. Or, you know, you you could even use names like, I don't know, women and men, Um, The name doesn't matter. It's the function and the biology that matters. Yes, I can already hear your objection. You are are right now shouting. I know. You're saying, what about women who can't get pregnant, huh? Bet you never thought of them. Checkmate, loser. And then you take a sip of your kombucha, confident that you've just debunked biology by pointing out that infertile women exist. But you haven't, I assure you. Infertile women exist. Don't invalidate the statement that women can get pregnant any more than a man who loses an arm in a wood chipper accident invalidates the statement that humans have two arms. His accident doesn't mean that humans don't have two arms or that we must now entertain the possibility that there might be humans out there with eight arms and 12 legs and 46 heads. It just means he's supposed to have two arms, but the wood chipper had other ideas. Okay, in a similar way, infertile women are that way, either because they're older and their time of fertility has passed, or because something went wrong. Illness, mutation, deformity, injury, surgery. Some known thing interceded and deprived this woman of that function. But we know that she's supposed to have it. Like the man with the one arm is supposed to have two. This is not a problem for the binary. On the contrary, this is what's known as an exception that proves the rule. Okay. So that's the binary. Now, all of that said, let's check in with Sarah Ramirez. Reading from one of my favorite news organizations, LGBTQ Nation, uh, it says, Sarah Ramirez, the actor who played the bisexual character Callie Torres on the medical drama TV series Grey's Anatomy, came out as non-binary in an August 27 uh, Instagram post. The post, which showed Ramirez with a crop top haircut, was captioned, new profile pic, In me is the capacity to be girlish boy, boyish girl, boyish boy, girlish girl, all, neither, hashtag non-binary. All right, now, hang on. First of all, it's just a haircut. Relax, okay? She she got a haircut, and now she thinks she's a shapeshifter. This is like like if I spiked my hair up and went, behold, 
I am a trans-dimensional being unbound by the laws of gravity. I am God. Look upon me and weep, ye mortals. You see my haircut. You can't get superpowers for 19 bucks at sports clips is all I'm trying to say. Okay. Anyway, back to the article. It says, Ramirez previously came out as bisexual in October 2016 while making um, remarks at the True Colors United's 40 to None Summit. Wait, so she came out twice. Can you do that? She's, is that a... Well, okay. I guess it's a two different thing. Non-binary, bisexual. Uh, back to the article. It says, at the time, Ramirez said, and because of the intersections that exist in my own life, woman, multiracial woman, woman of color, queer, bisexual, Mexican, Irish, Im- American, immigrant, and raised by families heavily rooted in Catholicism on both my Mexican and Irish sides, I am deeply invested in projects that allow our youth's voices to be heard and that support our youth in owning their own complex narratives so that we can show up for them in the ways they need us to. Uh, and says Ramirez, who has been married to her husband, Ryan DeBolt, since 2011, is a member of the True Colors Fund board of directors and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, first of all, you, you notice how her, the intersections she lists are completely redundant. She lists woman three times. Queer and bisexual is two different things. And multiracial and woman of color as two separate things. And Mexican and immigrant as two separate things. She's, she's throwing 50-yard bombs in garbage time, basically. She's padding the stats, okay? Um this is a, a person desperate to be seen as interesting and different, but like so many people today, she's convinced that the only way to do that is to get yourself into as many demographic categories as possible. Now, if we were going to psychoanalyze all of this, there are many directions we could go. Um, it would be a long and winding and rather terrifying journey, I suspect, but I want to focus on just this one thing, this, this business about being non-binary. Um, as she says, a boy, a girl, both, and neither. That, of course, makes no sense whatsoever. You cannot be something and be another thing that's fundamentally different and be both and be none of them all at once. You might as well claim that you're standing on the earth and the surface of the sun at the same time. It is nonsensical, objectively. But um, what's going on here, really, though? You know, why do people make these claims about themselves? I think the answer, or part of the answer, is this. Sarah Ramirez isn't so much observing something about herself. She is rather making assumptions about other people. Okay, Kind of like what Michelle Obama was doing. And I'll, I'll explain more what I mean. Because it, it strikes me that when, when people do this, especially when celebrities come out and say, oh, I, I am just so complicated. My inner life is so interesting and unique. My experiences are so profound. I, I cannot be defined by the labels that the rest of you use. No, no, I, I am so many things, and yet none of those things. I am like a work of abstract art. I am a walking poem. A song in the wind is my existence. And they go on and on and on. Um, and then they actually explain in more detail what they mean and why they have come to this conclusion that they belong to a whole new category of human existence, non-binary or whatever other label they want. When you listen to their description of their inner experience, you think, wait a second, that's just, that's just being a person. That's pretty normal. The categories and labels and jargon are different and bizarre and sound kind of crazy, but the actual experiences underneath it, that's not special at all. These people are extraordinarily narcissistic, you have to understand, especially celebrities. And so they have normal human emotions and experiences and assume that the average person must not experience any of this themselves, that they must be going through something that is just far beyond the emotional and psychological reaches of the plebe on the street. They, you know, they, they must be 
and they must be making this assumption. Otherwise, how would they know that the label of woman doesn't accurately describe them? How do they know that all women don't have the same sorts of emotions and experiences they do? How do they know that what they're feeling isn't just what women, women feel? They assume that it's different. And that assumption must be born, at least in part, by extreme arrogance. So, you're a woman with some traditionally masculine interests and tendencies. So what? That's not special at all. And it doesn't make you not a woman. That just makes you a woman. That's part of being a woman, a person, a human. We don't need a new category for you. It doesn't make you a woman and a man and none and all together. The most feminine women in the world have masculine aspects of their personality. My wife, for instance, very feminine, very good at traditionally feminine things like decorating, for example. But if you pour her three fingers of 100 proof whiskey, she'll guzzle that thing straight, no problem. She built her own barn uh, for the chickens. I, I, I helped, in fairness, but uh, still. Uh, she knows how to bait a hook. You know, I, I could go on. Does that mean that she's not a woman? She's non-binary? She, she's a man, a woman, both, and neither? No, she's just a woman. But, but she's a, a woman with some unique and interesting traits and facets to her personality. Indeed, what makes the thing about the whiskey kind of funny and cool is precisely that she's a woman. You know, I can hold my liquor too, but nobody cares about that. I'm a man. It's expected. What allows it to be different, uh, what allows us to be different and develop our own identity and personality are the ways that we put our own spin on the categories we naturally belong to. In the same way, we all belong to the category of human being, right? And because of that, if any one of us ever figures out how to fly without mechanical assistance, that's going to be a pretty big deal. If we were birds, it wouldn't be. And if you do ever start flying, that wouldn't make you a bird. If it did, then this utterly fascinating, gobsmacking thing about you would suddenly be rote and routine. Again, what makes us interesting are the variations within the categories. If you deny the categories or experience variation and decide that it means that you belong to the other category, you know, you're a man who has feminine tendencies in certain areas, so you decide that you are, in fact, a woman. If you do that, then you actually lose what made you interesting. You lose your uniqueness. Gender is binary because of biology, as I explained at the beginning. Nothing you can ever do or feel will change that. You are a man or a woman, a he or her. You are not both. You are not one than the other. You are not neither. You are not a they. Um, and it takes, I suppose, some measure of basic humility to admit that and submit yourself to that reality, which imposes itself on you whether you like it or not anyway. But that doesn't mean you have to live a cookie-cutter existence or think and act just like everybody else on your side of the binary. If you're a woman, be whatever kind of woman you want. Wear whatever you want. Get whatever sort of haircut you want. The high-top fade on a woman doesn't do much for me personally, but hey, it's your head. Do what you want. Um, live how you want. Think what you want. That's not to say that every choice we make is going to be equally good, healthy, and moral. But the point is simply that you have a lot of freedom as a woman to be the sort of woman you want to be. You just don't have the freedom to be not a woman. And that's okay. In fact, there's a lot of freedom in accepting that. But for now, Sarah Ramirez does belong to a new category of existence, an ever-growing category. That would be the category of canceled by me. And that's it for the show. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends to subscribe as well. 
We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Danny D'Amico, and our audio is mixed by Robin Fenderson. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2020. If you prefer facts over feelings, aren't offended by the brutal truth, and you can still laugh at the insanity filling our national news cycle, well, tune in to The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get a whole lot of that and much more. See you there.